Hello and welcome back to the Latecomers. I'm Amity. I'm Deepra. Uh-oh. I'm going to tell you things about what the president has been up to. Secret things. Secret things. I don't... I think it's mostly maps these days. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> so this week we're going to do a brief little introduction to a previous episode and then I'm going to plug in episode 204 of our podcast where we spoke already about all the president's men. Let me read you the summary I wrote way back when. This is on page, it's like the last one on this thing. That's crazy. I guess I just started this. I have a 115-page document where I do all the Mm write-ups. I could just write over them, but I don't. I just add one to the top. And the first one on this document is from this uh, episode Mm. 204, All the President's Men. Amity and Lemuel get get a touch political in this week's episode. We also swear a whole bunch. So look out, everybody. We're going to swear a whole bunch. We mourn the state of journalism, marvel at the parallels in the news, as well as Robert Redford's beautiful hairs and pitch serial season three. Uh, I don't think what we decided should be serial season three was serial season three, but serial season three was actually really good. So check that out. Okay. That's my recommendation for this episode. So uh, in the before we get started very quickly, how was your week? Oh, my week was wonderful. It was it, wonderful. Uh, we, we wound up um, as I... Uh, Yes, spent time with friends, and I also went to a play with... Yes, but we talked about that last week. We we talked about it last week, but yes, (laughs) it was was a a really lovely play. Uh, uh, Remember this, The Lesson of Jan Jan Karski. Uh, Yes. um, Written by Clark Clark Young and Derek Goldman, and featuring the one-person performance of David Strathairn. Um, but yes, it was a really fun week. There was a lot of cookie adventures. How was yours? It was good. I'm pretty sure by the time this drops, I will have made all of the cookies. Oh, yes. We are in pre-cookie time when we record this, but by the time this comes out, there will be so many cookies. There will be literally hundreds of cookies in this house. This is this is what happens in this house, which is a kind of a... if. You're in a good state at making the cookies. It's like a cookie palooza. It is a cookie palooza. And when you reach the end of this task and there's just cookies everywhere, it's the cookie apocalypse. It's not the cookie apocalypse. It could be for me. I could literally yeah, heal over from. No, you all don't have the capability of to take one cookie sort of and then eat but one the, cookie you know, and then be happy. A with testimony to one. your cookie making abilities. Or your lack of self control. One of the two. <laughs> okay, that's just like blaming an addict for their issues. Thank you very much. All right, so let's talk about All the President's Men and how it fits on the top thrills list. Right, uh, right between The Bridge on the River Kwai. And Frankenstein. Wow, that's an interesting place. <laughs> was this movie thrilling? I th- oh yeah, it absolutely. Was. As thrilling as a movie that's really about journalism and is pretty true to journalism can right. be, because there is a lot of kicking it in the newsroom, tap right. tap 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 writing. But like this and Spotlight, I think both are thrilling movies, and Zodiac even, mm-hmm. even though they are. Pretty accurate to the fact that journalists spend a lot of time on their phone and on their typewriters or computers, depending There's, on um, when you are. 
We've talked about the different kinds of thrilling that exist. Sure. There are outright thrills, like when we were watching Speed. Woohoo! There are dramatic thrills, like when you're watching Twelve Angry Men. <gasps> um, and that film, uh, this film, All the President's Spend, has both of those. Kind of has both of them, yeah. Because you're watching some really outstanding acting going on. And, and it also has the thrill of a hunt. What a, a good journalistic film. And that thrill of the hunt works for a movie, for instance, like, um, let's say, Ring. Uh, the Ring, rather. Uh, you are, it's, that it's like that. You're on a deadline, you're on the hunt, you're teasing out details, and not everyone's talking to you or telling you the truth. And there's some actual physical peril that these journalists get into. In the yeah, that's the true. That is true. Uh, they're in, the, in physical danger. They're also challenging this incredibly powerful man uh, to cough up the truth. Something that he did not necessarily want to do, or the the look on their faces, Hoffman and, and uh, Redford, who are both very good in this film. Yes. As when they learn how high up this goes. Yeah, right. And you think to Oh, yourself, like the president president. Right. Not like the president of the Lions Club or whatever. No, and that's kind of what makes this film remarkable, is the fact that you... The look on their faces when they realize this could actually end the presidency, and eventually it does. And that's not their goal. Their goal is just to get out the truth. Yes. Yeah, no, they're not trying to bring someone down. Mm -hmm. They're trying to expose misdeeds by whoever happened to Yeah, there's a very funny story about Ben Ben Bradley, uh, their editor. Yeah. Who is, who's an actual person, of course, because these are all people, actual real people. They're actual real living people um, who do not look like Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman. But that's yeah, it's like, that was who does Rob Woodward brought up. It's like given a choice, I would want to be played by by Robert Redford. Well, I want Denzel Washington to play me in the movie, and time is running out, man. Well, not we, that I think he's going to die soon, but like. It wouldn't surprise me if at some point he was just like, you know what, I'm going to be good. Well, he might retire, <laughs> yes. But Ben Bradley is played by um, Jason Robards. And there's a very funny story about how his kids preferred Jason Robards' version of their dad. <laughs> because it's like, wow, you're concise, you're on point, you're daring, you're bold. <laughs> it's not the person they're familiar with. They're, they're familiar with the guy who... Forgot to put gas in the tank before the picnic and, oh, and geez. things like that. But well, because he was thinking about deep throat, like right, he wasn't exactly. thinking he was about the by Hal picnic. Holbrook, which to me is always. I think we covered that during the episode too. I guess you didn't know at the time how big and recognizable Hal Holbrook would be as an actor. So having him play this, no, because he is a smallish sort of nondescript man. Right. He's a fame. He's a famo now, so we recognize him. Right. But generally, he is the type of person that I would think would be a spy. Somebody who you wouldn't look, glance at twice. Yes. Someone who definitely fits in in any situation, just because we know his face because he's famous. <laughs> right, but I mean... 
I think at the time they just chose him for those qualities, not realizing that he was now going to become one of the great stars of the Well, of course not, screen. yeah. yeah. C- couldn't... Uh... So now you're like, isn't that, isn't that Hal Holbrook lurking in the shadows there? I know who that is. <laughs> yes. Yes, and I'm going to always presume that Hal Holbrook is the one that's telling me secrets if I don't know who else it is. I know. No, for, since I saw this movie, every time I see him on screen, even in something like The Fog, I want to lean in close to hear what he's going to say. What are you going to say? Follow the money. Was it Nixon? It was probably Nixon. Uh, yeah, so that this movie is thrilling. It's a good episode. Have a listen. We'll be back next week when we're talking about 1931's Frankenstein. Totally different vibes. Frankenstein. Is this is this a this isn't Bride of Frank? This isn't a Mel Brooks movie. No, is it, do, are we really going to do that? Okay. All right. So that's we will see you next week with that. I'd like to remind you to take your medicines, and we would like to remind you. Better late than never. Thank you. Hello, and welcome back to The Latecomers. I'm Anne. I'm Lemuel. No! Yes, we're interrupting for verisimilitude. Verisimilitude. Because in this film, people interrupt each other constantly. Constantly. All the time. They're talking over each other. Well, we'd also like to make a pleasant audio experience for our listeners. Carl Bernstein. I get to be Bob Woodward? (laughs) Yes. Nice. (laughs) So we watched All the President's Men this week. And we'll be talking about it shortly, but before we do, how was your week? Um, my week was very busy, but very productive at the same time. Excellent. And yours? Uh, it was good. I'm just trying to get to the end of this thing so that I can close it and right. be done. Changing jobs is fun. Training your replacements is not. I mean, it's fine. It's good. Everything's fine. But you have more relaxed space. Generally, when I change a job, it's because someone tells me to get out. Yeah, or no, I, I told my, I told them I need to get out, okay. so I'm getting out. That's it. Okay. My life is boring. We saw Ready Player One this weekend. We did. Uh, it was for my birthday, ostensibly. One uh, of the things that, one of the uh, variety of birthday things we'll be doing for Amity. That's good, because it wasn't great. No, this will not, no, this would be very disappointing if this was your one birthday gift. So, it was a big deal that he went to a Spielberg movie It was with a me. very big deal. But, um, yeah. I got to see Mecha Godzilla. That was... Yeah, there you go. There we go. That's and my And the movie wasn't bad, but I felt like... And I finally kind of summed it up today in right. a conversation I was no, having. No, you've read the book, which is why... I read the book. There's more room for disappointment. I read the book, and I understand that um, people do have problems with the book, but I loved it because I read it. You know, it very is a very fast read, if you're a quick reader. And it's brimming with nostalgia from the stuff that I liked when I was a kid, and I enjoyed that. Some people are like, nostalgia's not art. Well, that's fine. Then it's not art, but it's fun, and it's entertaining, and it's escapism, and I'm fine with all of those things. Not escapism, but escapism. escapism. That's cultural appropriation, by the way. But this movie reminded me of the problems with the movie Rock of Ages, which is... It's a movie that is made for one group of people with content for a different group of people. And so the movie is for no one. This movie was made by Steven Spielberg to target 13 to 17-year-olds. Like, that's the uh, primary audience that they're targeting. But the nostalgia piece of it is for people who are 35 to 45. So why are you making a children's movie full of nostalgia for people who are not children. Right. Having seen Ready Player One, 
I can say that it has all the flaws of a Steven Spielberg movie, which is a very kind of saccharine world where there's not a great deal of grit or violence is never real, even when it's portraying scenes of real violence in the real world. Mm-hmm. Um, the things I liked about it, also I felt the pace was far too frantic at times. Yeah. Um, some of the video games that people enter in, I don't understand how anyone would enjoy playing them because they're just ultra-violent well, and destructive. I don't hate that. But um, <laughs> Depending on my mood. The fun thing for me was seeing Mechagodzilla or uh, Harryhausen's Cyclops or one of the crashed war machines from George Pal's War of the Worlds. Right. Again, those are things that I appreciate, but those aren't even my generation. That's a whole generation younger than me. Yeah. These are people who saw these things on television and mm-hmm. maybe didn't see them on television. So And then thirteen to seventeen right. year olds are gonna have very little Yes, it won't matter to those. But so. to give you an example of why where I think it failed, and this is something I described to you after seeing it, um, all these characters are pretty much seen in a big battle scene near the end of the film. Yeah. And there's so well, much 1. going 4 on. Four seconds each. Right. <laughs> So much is going on at the end of the film that I can't imagine on anything other than a theater screen. You could pick out all these characters and references. And so for a minute, yes, it's really cute watching Batman and Spawn and Catwoman and Freddy Krueger and all these other characters leaping off the screen and fighting either side by side or with the Ninja Turtles or something. But the problem is it all goes by so fast and in such a wide kind of panoramic view that you, I can't imagine watching this on a television screen yeah, no. will be an experience that yeah, will be in any way so much. as much fun. Not, it, it felt very much a like later Dane Cook comedy where he'll just say a thing. Right. Like he'll just say speak and spell. That's not a joke. But everybody laughs because it's a thing I know. Right. <laughs> and it's like, well, that's not... Like you're not doing anything with it. You know what I, my favorite... Part of it was, yeah. I think, probably was the IROC character design. I really thought that, that was a cool game. piece of character design. But uh, it's fine. Like I said, it's serviceable. I don't think Steven Spielberg makes bad movies. We might disagree on that. I think mm-hmm. he is a person who makes serviceable films. That right. is a serviceable film. So, And he yeah. can make good movies I'm from sure he time can. to time. Yes. Yes, my complaint goes much deeper than that, and you don't have all night. Yes, no, but, it's fine. We're not going to do all. Yes, it was it it was an agreeable way of spending time. I think. Yeah, it was fine. It I was, like the it cast. I like Olivia Cook. Yes, Olivia Cook is wonderful. Is, I like right. her very much. She wasn't a great. I mean, she was the right casting for what they were doing in this movie. Right. She's not the right casting for the character in the book, but you know what are you going to do? Right, exactly. <laughs> so, oh, uh, Lena Waithe was in it as well, and I really, really like her. So I like seeing her in anything. Uh, can't complain about that. And everything, you know, it's fine. Like I said, it's fine. And that sounds like a dig, but it wasn't. It was a. And I also feel like in a week, I'm going to be like, oh, did I watch that? Because it doesn't feel. It's sticky. a dig at a movie that has gotten this much hype. And I think what when a producer is trying to make a movie so memorable that it'll stay with you, it's okay is not what they want to hear. Yeah, but they also, I mean, in a lot of the groups that I am a f- member of online, right. uh, 
no one thought that this was going to be successful. And people were surprised at how successful it ended up being, Mm -hmm. it turns out. So like I said, I wasn't expecting it to be a horrible film because it's a Steven Spielberg film. Like, he's not... He's, like, by definition, not a bad director. In in the very least, you will get a very competently made film. Precisely. Yeah. And it was a nice way to spend the afternoon. It's uh-huh. fine. I, we saw it on, on a Sunday morning. Uh-huh. Uh, it was an 11.10 showing. We got out and had lunch. It was right. great. It was fine. You know, it, like I said, it's fine. Fine. You want to get to the topic of this topic week? Topic of this week, yes. So we decided mm-hmm. to continue our... Truck through the 70s with the 1976 film All the President's Men. Well, not all. you don't see All the President's Men. You see some of them. Yes. Others are in the shadows in parking garages. That's true. Um, and he's really not one of the President's Men, or he wouldn't be in the shadows in the parking garage. Uh, this is a movie that came out 9th, uh, the 9th of April, 1976. So happy almost birthday. Uh, it's currently playing in San Francisco <laughs> tonight at seven thirty. As uh, yeah, right. At exactly. the new at the new Parkway, uh, or the uh, no, the Alamo Draft House, I think. So maybe for a birthday situation, maybe as a look at how similar some stuff is to then. That and, was the thing that came up as we were watching it. I was like, there are also teacher strikes happening. Mm. Everything is too familiar. The situation, the paranoid president who wants to silence the media, the uh, interference by politicians who want to, who are part of a conservative backlash. There's, was, uh, there's actual fake news happening. Right. Like, it, uh, But seeing the denials and the attacks on the, the Washington Post during the course of the film that are, are shown in newsreel footage, it felt really eerily similar. To the, the point what's of being going on right slightly now. disturbing. Yeah. And, um, you know, actually more compelling. I almost felt like I was watching something as it was happening rather than something that had happened that so long ago. Now, this is not a Best Picture winner. Um, it was up against Rocky and Lost. Um, but we both seen Rocky, mm-hmm. so that doesn't fit into the theme of our podcast. So we watched this. I'd never seen it. Now, you've seen this film before, is that correct? I've seen this film many, 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 many years ago. Um, And it was watching it as a film student, part of uh, the producer's uh, series, what he called the Paranoia Trilogy, um, which were Clute and I think the Parallax View was the other one. I've never seen any of those three films. It's very much... um, yeah, uh, Alan Pacula was a remarkable director producer. He produced uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, which is one of my favorite movies. Now his name is Alan Pacula. Right. I never heard of this person before. I know Scott Bacula. <laughs> I did not know Alan Pacula with a P. With a P, and yes, he was a remarkable uh, producer and director. And this is a he. This film was a. It's a really good. I this I think this and. Rosemary's Baby have a similar feeling of everyone's out to get you, and there you don't a, know of. Yeah, there is a sort of trust. ominous um, thing from Go. Like yeah. we had to, when we started the film, we had to immediately turn the volume down because the opening thing is typewriter keys, right. but it's not. It's done as though it's gunshots. 
They're very loud. Mm-hmm. And according to, I will be leaning heavily on the IMDb, the IMDb trivia page for this episode. They, it was typewriter keys overlaid by gunshots and whiplashes to accentuate the themes of words as weapons. So that's why it was so jarring. It, and it, it was really jarring. was. I was just like, um, we need to, I feel like I'm being assaulted. We right. need to turn this down. I might have had some sound sensitivity <laughs> issues there at the beginning. And the rest of the movie is not like that. It is sort of low-key creepy. It is not... It never felt like they were in danger, even though they were in danger. I felt at the very end when... Um, and I don't want to get ahead of it, but I'll tell you the scene where I felt... That yeah. There was a, a real... car... Um, there was one of the scenes in the in the parking garage. Right. Uh, felt a little bit tense to me. But for the most part, this is a journalism movie. This is a lot of Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman on the phone. Yes, and there's that that's that's a lot of it. A lot of and taking notes. The action scenes are a guy on the phone taking notes and really grilling people until they fail and then he's able to catch them. And 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 them plotting well if we say this and they react that way, then we know this is true. And if we say this and they don't react that way, then we know this is true. It's like playing mastermind. I don't know right. if you know the game mastermind. That invo- oh, probably not because it involves like colored pegs, and you're like. I think it was battleship. No. Oh, okay. So I don't think the pegs are colored in battleship. But anyways, it's a logic game that I used to play in Gate. But yeah, it's a lot of. Well, we know you can't say a thing, but if I count to ten and you haven't hung up, then what I'm saying is correct. I mean, it's a lot of this. It's it's, (laughs) sidling up to the truth when you can't. I'm trying to find it by means that sometimes are appropriate, sometimes are completely inappropriate. Yeah. But when everyone is trying to hide the truth from you, it becomes a sort of by any means necessary right. game. And the people they lean on or lean into, um, that becomes part of the drama. Yeah. And it's amazing. The cast of this film is ridiculous because at points I'm seeing actors like Jane Alexander and Lindsay Krauss mm-hmm. and later F. Murray Abraham, we learned, just popping up in little tiny bits yeah. in this film. And this is a movie that comes up on the uh, podcast Doug Loves Movies a lot when they're playing the, not the Leonard Maltin game, Last Man Stanton, and they don't know if some, like, if they're out of movies that this actor might have been in. They'll say all the president's men because so many people were in this movie mm-hmm. that there's a chance that they just appeared in a single scene, like right. F. Murray Abraham. Right. It's completely, <laughs> completely unrecognizable. Pretty much. Yeah. It's because of his silly hat. All right. the 70s. So you want to? We're gonna go through. Yeah, we're gonna do a very brief plot, plot synopsis, but it feels very much like break in journalism, 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 journalism. Right. The end. That's basically well, because the plot what synopsis. you're doing is you're following the clues. Yeah. So the story begins with uh, a security guard finding that a door had uh, the the bolt on the lock had been taped over. Right. And this begins him investigating the building. Um, well, I think he just straight up calls the police. Right, he does, but they're investigating and find that there's a group of men who are 
highly incompetent breaking into this building. They were walking around with flashlights and things, and they seem to have someone that they're calling to in another building. Yeah, they're, well, in, in the Watergate across the street, right. because the break-in is at the Watergate complex where the Democratic National Committee has its offices. The person that they're on the walkie-talkie to is across the street at the hotel, the Watergate Hotel, because they can see across and see the lights. That security guard is, in fact, the security guard who actually worked at the Watergate complex and actually called him in. His name was Frank Wills, and he was cast to reprise his real-life role, which is pretty awesome. So Also... One of the only black people in this movie. Right, unfortunately. Mm. Although there's, yes, as a matter of fact, there's only one other I can think of. <laughs> but, um, so, in the morning, after the break-in, the story is assigned to Bob Woodward, who is a very novice reporter at the Washington Post. Yeah, he's only been there like 10 months, and I think we hear. He's, so, but he is novice. Right. He is new. And so, he is sent to the courthouse to cover the men being assigned a lawyer, and they're assigned what's called a country club lawyer in the business, and this alerts Woodward that something's wrong. Because it's not an assignation. Right. They, the, originally, they were like, oh, yeah, the, you're going to get the, you know. Right. One will be a, a, an attorney. Public will be, defender. Yeah, so no, but the public defenders got the case, but then had the case taken from them. Right, so now these men are being defended by a higher-profile lawyer, and Woodward keeps wanting to find out why, and also why that's being monitored by an even higher-profile lawyer. Right. And he just keeps falling around from courthouse to courthouse, which kind of makes you like him right away, the fact that he's onto something and he won't let go. Yeah, he's dogged, for sure. Right. And the fact that these men later uh, are discovered to have ties to the CIA... Yes. ...really begin to interest him. But again, there's no story there because there's nothing, you know... To prove there. Right. I think the first instigating clue was the idea that they were all Cubans. Three, three of them were Cubans? Three of the four or uh, four of the five. I can't remember how many. Four of the five men right. uh, were Cuban-Americans from Miami. Um, and I, my, favorite thing, my favorite thing, one of my, I like this movie very much. One of my favorite things is um, they, so Bob, Woodward is the only one working on this to start with. Um, and he calls the White House, which you can do. There is a just a public line, and asks for somebody, right? He asks for Howard Hunt. Um, and they're like, the, just the switchboard operator at the White House is like, uh, oh no, he's not here. Have you tried this other place? Mm. Like these switchboard operators are really giving out a lot of business that maybe they don't need to be giving out. Because then he calls this, and he's like, no, do you have a number for them? And he calls this other place. It's I think that's the Mullen firm, which I believe is a like a marketing or advertising uh, company. It's unclear. Um, and asks for him again. And once again, the secretary or receptionist who's answering is like, Oh no, he's not here, but you might try this person's office. Which I think is uh Colson. Oh, have you tried Colson's office? Mm-hmm. Who's the special counsel? Right. And but there's no way that Bob Woodward would have tracked him if these secretaries hadn't just been like 
Well, oh no! This Here's was, his entire calendar. This is Try him. Really, one of those cases where you can say this was a different era. Yeah. No, for sure. When there was there wasn't the the kind of weird sort of hush hush on government agencies and the sort of need to know business going on. It was really very much that they wanted to have a good relationship with the press. But he, I don't even. Oh yeah, no, he does. He does star all of his conversations. Bob, Bob right, Woodward, he's, the he's, he's, and that's something that uh, later on uh, Ben Bradley goes over with him. It's like, did you identify yourself clearly right. as to who you were? Because what Woodward is discovering is connections to uh, Howard Hunt, mm-hmm. who was an employee of the FBI, a former employee, and the special counsel was Charles Coulson. Um, at this point, Carl Bernstein becomes involved. Yeah. Uh, in a very indirect and strange way, he starts editing Woodward's work without permission. Yeah, he pulls it off of the printer. Right. And, well, not even editing it, just straight up rewriting it. Yeah, but he's also... This is Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman. We should say. And they have a disagreement in the beginning because Woodward takes offense to this, and and Bernstein points out to him that he's a better writer. Yeah. And I think that's what it comes down to. Woodward's able to look at the paper and say, no, you wrote it better than I did. You actually... Yeah, yeah. he says, look, you wait until the third paragraph to put right. the names that are important, that caught your attention. Uh-huh. There's three paragraphs in. You need to put. You need well, to lead with that. That's the important piece. And what's great to see here is that you learn very quickly about their characters. Woodward is dogged, dogged but he is not necessarily as sensationalistic as Bernstein, who knows how to write a punchy, punchy uh, headline. Bernstein, however, is kind of a hothead and very impatient. Yeah, he wants to publish immediately right. all the things until he does it. It's very interesting. It's like if it's a small piece, he wants to go regardless. He's We, we know this. Mm-hmm. And he also is like, well, we know this thing to be true. Right. But we don't know this thing to be true. It's a thing that you could assume. Right. But it's not backed up by anything. What you're looking at in the beginning of this film is two men who are small time. Bernstein can be sensationalistic because he has nothing really to report. Woodward is a guy who has all the information but can't quite put it together in a way that's going to grab anyone's attention. Right. And so between the two of them, however, they're able to sort of pool their forces and they're actually put together as a team. Nobody believes that there's a story here to start with. No. I think a year into the the situation, they, there's a conversation, and they're talking about you know how many reporters are there in the country, and five of them are writing about Watergate. Right, like it's a very small thing until it isn't, and you know when it isn't anymore when. Bob Woodward is like, we're ready to print, and Bernstein is like, no, we're not. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, it's well, like, oh, no. places suddenly. <laughs> but not so suddenly, because you understand that mm-hmm. Bernstein is also understanding the implications of everything they've discovered and now understands how big this is, and they can't afford to mess yeah, it up. When they but, reach constitutional crisis right. levels of cover-up, because the thing is, but, so the whole thing, uh-huh. historically, if you don't know about Watergate and all of those things, is the break-in at the DNC is not a big deal. I mean, it's not a small thing. Right. They were tapping the phones at the DNC. Which is what the break-in was about, to, to clarify. Right. That. So these men, uh-huh. these these sad men with walkie-talkies... Um, were breaking into the, the Democratic National Committee's offices to tap the phones. 
uh, you find out that the, it's called creep, the committee right. to reelect the president. That's really what it's called. It's really called creep. We're not politicizing it. <laughs> um, is behind payments to these men. Right. And attorneys are pay are paid to go in and get rid of the story and get and get these men off and make this go away, not because the tapping of the DNC phones is a big deal, but because it's the latest in a string of activities right. that have been going on to undercut uh, the Democrats and their ability to bring a challenger against Nixon, right. who could win. Which is, again, where it began to feel very familiar, yeah. tampering with elections and tampering with the whole process of, of finding a nominee. Yeah. But um, back in, going back to the film, yeah. at this point, Woodward and Bernstein's stuff is being presented. They have a sympathetic handler. Yes. Um, who is trying to encourage and foster the story. They bring it up to Ben Bradley, who's played by Jason Robards. Yes. Who, you know his status in the newsroom because he keeps putting his feet on people's desks. He really does. I, I've never seen a man in a suit jacket also put his feet on someone else's desk. Like, that's just, he's really just like, I think that's this a demonstration. is my place. Right, of his uh, status. The fact and he, he I believe, is the, he's the managing editor. Is that right? Of the, Executive of the paper? Editor. Executive editor. Mm -hmm. And he's able to criticize them and say that uh, the the work that the pair have done has lacked reliable sources. At which point, Bernstein loses his temper and is silenced with just a look from just Mr. Bradley. That's all it took. Although if Jason Robards looked at me like that, I would also shut up. Right. So <laughs> um, yeah. This leads... And uh, the whole thing, the whole problem with this is they have reliable sources. They don't have reliable sources that will say who they are on record. Who are willing to come forward in any way, right? It is, yes, it is all unnamed aides or... Un, so, ostensibly, this is leakers. It, this is a series of leakers. They are currently in government positions, right. and they cannot speak against their bosses and their bosses' bosses, etc., etc. So, um... Woodward is upset that he can't find a, a, a reliable source. He says that he met a person at a party once, a social gathering, and he's going to go and talk to them. And this is where we're introduced to... He just knows it's a senior government official. Right. And he says at this point, I don't know titles. Like, I right. didn't get titles. This may not be true. We but, don't know, yes. Uh, he, we're introduced to another character, Deep Throat. Deep Throat. Who, it's Hal Holbrook, it's, a baby Hal Holbrook. Which is a really, I don't know who goes in the name Deep Throat, because that's just bad. That's really bad. Which, for those of you who don't know, Deep Throat was the name of a porn film. Was it before this? Okay. So, um... Yes. Yes. Uh, you want to know the plot of that porn film? I wish I didn't know it, but I do. Yeah, it's not worth going into, <laughs> however. It's um, a 70s right. porn film. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, he goes to meet uh, this character played by Hal Holbrook, who we're never told quite who he is. But uh, he meets in a, a parking garage, and this man is very insistent on a lot of sort of cloak and dagger, you know. He's made Woodward aware that he's watching him all the time because he wants him to place a flag out. In a yeah, he's like, you can't reach out to me directly. Flower pot. I um, will leave notes in the in page 20 of your New York Times delivery. Right. And if you need to talk to me, put a flag in the flower pot on your 
And you can only meet window. him in the parking garage after changing cabs so he can't be followed. Right. And so there's a lot of cloak and dagger involved. And I think in the beginning, Woodward really feels that this is a lot of cloak and dagger. This is useless theatricality. Right. However, Deep Throat does tell him something really useful, which is follow the money, which is a phrase that's stuck with us since then. That's right, which apparently was specifically done in the movie. That mm-hmm. is not something that actually he said. Well, yes. Or mm-hmm. it, like, it, like in... In the reality of the situation, follow the money wasn't ever uttered. It wasn't in the book mm-hmm. uh, on which this is based, but it was put in this, and then, yeah, follow the money is a cultural sort of touchstone. Like a lot of the, the lines that we saw in the Godfather film. It's just Keep your become, friends close right. and your enemies closer. It goes from there that there's a, Bernstein is able to track the um, the corrupt activities of creep. Yeah. <laughs> Creeps, um, corruption. And to discover a check for $25,000 that's paid to Kenneth Dahlberg. All right, so it connects now, it has a direct connection between money taken in, that was supposed to be money taken in to reelect the president. And, um, and then it just seems like they're laundering it <laughs> at right. a certain point. Because, like, he had received a payment, but he wanted cash, so he gave the payment to creep so we could get the cash back like that was where that check came from and then that check was then used to pay somebody else yeah. or something and at this point you're discovering that both Woodward and Bernstein are making discoveries together and you really you're with them at this point in the story I feel you're following along with them and you want them to get uh, the information that's going to prove it because what they really need is reliable sources or somebody who's willing to talk right but but it's shot in a way that is it's not boring mm-hmm. but it is just them sitting on the phone. My favorite, oh, another part that I really loved was uh, Robert Redford writes CIA in his notes mm-hmm. in pencil. I'm like, this might be one that you write in pen. Like, <laughs> like, and there's a lot of doodles. Like, you see them doodling and writing. Like, the notes were very realistic. I've been on meetings where mm-hmm. I had to take notes, but if it, I was the only one there or if it was a phone thing, there's a lot of doodles on that page too, like, and I really liked those details. Well, it did it made the entire film? It made you feel as if you were there, you know, even years and years on when you know yeah. what's going to happen. What they discover the two men eventually is that, and you'll pardon the language, uh, is that the creep was paying a great deal of money to finance a rat fucking campaign. Yes. And rat fucking is a term used when you discredit or plant information. They were literally paying for fake news right. to be printed fake about be... the Democrats. Right. In in that that were entering into the primaries. Once again, right. they were this was in an effort to reelect the president, they were trying to weaken anybody that the Democrats could put up against him. Right. Uh and yeah. And I don't know, like, I don't know backstories and things like that, but I've got to think that Nixon losing to JFK originally really had to put a burr in his butt. And he was like, (laughs) if I run again, I'm not going to lose. So whatever you need to do to keep me from losing, do that. Right. Okay, so what happens from then is that Bradley is now much more interested in the story. There's more compelling sources. There's sources that are indicating... Because it, it, it's not just the Watergate break-in. This has no. been going on for a, a year then plus. It goes, so then the, the sense that he's getting is the Republican um, the committee to re-elect the president 
has actually been taking large sums of money, millions of dollars, yes. that have been going through these hands and being used for really nefarious purposes. Yeah. So it's not just about re-election. Now it's about defaming the other candidate, fabricating stories about him. And um, there was a safe that, right. I mean, at different points of the movie, this safe has various amounts of money. It starts with, they say, there were there was $360,000 mm-hmm. that was basically discretionary cash, which one of the women that was working there was like, I thought it was to take donors to dinner and stuff. And I'm like, right. $360,000? Was it also to buy them houses? And because... Is- and then we find out that it was not probably 360. It was probably along the order of a million dollars in cash. Now, this is Jane Alexander's use. character, who does a really great performance in this film of a person who is just terrified. And there's some good performances at this part um, because you're also seeing uh, Stephen Collins, who sadly is, you know... <laughs> Well, m- many of these people are not going to be with us anymore because... No, 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 but sadly has been discredited as a person since... Then. Oh, really? I didn't know yeah. that. Okay, um, well, then we don't need to... Yeah, we don't need to go into that. But it was just sad because he was one of the actors in my childhood who did a lot of stuff I liked. And um, Meredith Baxter Bernie is yes! a fact, who appears briefly as his wife. Um, but Oh, yeah, she was great. Right. We are an honest house. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> right. Yes, she ma'am. let you know who was in charge. Yeah, she um, made her husband quit because right. this shit is shady, get out. And then you discover later that as much as you want to trust him, because earlier in the film, Jane Alexander talks about how she doesn't want anything to happen to him Yeah, as a person. It's like there's a lot of faith in him to be a trustworthy character. It turns out he's not. No. Um, because y- you get into mm-hmm. a certain amount of muck before you get out, typically. Right. Uh, so... The White House issues a, a, a non-denial denial of the Post's story uh, when they come, you know, uh, when they go big They finally it. go to Prince mm-hmm. and then immediately, oh, they go to Prince with the fact that this person that we were just speaking of mm-hmm. uh, named these five men um, uh, under grand, and grand jury testimony. Right. And they've gotten him to... This is the part where he was like, uh, I'm never going to say this one person's name, Haldeman. I'm never going to say this person's name. I'm never going to say it. And Dustin Hoffman, or, you know, Bernstein, both both of those things, um, is like, okay, well, you won't say it, but if I'm wrong, hang up before I get to 10. If I get to 10, I can run with the story. And he counts to 10. And the guy stays on the line and he says, so I'm right? Or I, so, you know, so I'm confirmed. We're good. We're a go. And he's like, I have no problem if you print a story that says that or you know, whatever it is. Like the, the, the no yes or the yes no that they do, um, to keep from having to say anything. And this is Hugh Sloan, right? This is, the, yeah. Okay. The, the person who everyone believes to be an honest man and they don't want him to. And then the next day, uh-huh. They say he didn't say that in grand jury testimony. He did not say his name that right. way. So, so this leads to another meeting with Deep Throat, and this is the meeting where I felt the movie takes a really where the first time that Woodward's taking very seriously what's going on because he is at this point really angry. 
And he's telling him, I, I don't want any more puzzles. Right, because I, I, a lot of what right. Deep Throat says is, well, you're just going to have to figure that out. Right. Like Woodward will ask him a question, and he'll just say, well, you're going to have to figure that out. And I'm like, right. well, then what the fuck are we doing here? He's in the sort of, he car believes, park at 3 a.m. I think he believes that he can just guide Woodward in the right direction, and Woodward will figure it out. But the problem is, he's not really, he doesn't have a clear idea of how much obstruction will be going on. Right. And so what winds up happening is that he comes out with it and mentions the FBI, the CIA are involved in covert operations inside the United States. They're being directed to do these things. Yeah. And it goes very, it goes as high as it can possibly go. And then we're aware of the fact that, and that's the scene where Redford walks out of the parking garage and starts running. Yeah. And he looks, and this is to his credit, because again, this is a period of time where Robert Redford is pulling away from these earlier parts where he's basically a pretty boy. He's playing this. And where he's doing films like this and trying to establish himself as a different kind of actor. Yeah. Brubaker, which is one of my favorite films also with Jane Alexander, about a prison warden uh, uh, reforming a you know a really rough prison. He was doing a lot of films like that in this period to try to distance himself from his earlier roles. I think this particular scene where he looks terrified and he breaks into a run because if he I realizes, hear that the CIA is doing covert operations in the U.S. not only that, that your life is threatened as well, and that I and that I'm maybe gonna say that the CIA is doing covert. Right. Um, yeah, I'm like, oh, they 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 kill people. That's right. like what they exist for. And the fact oh. that the CIA is operating illegally inside the United States, anyhow, at this not point, not allowed. You and guys so are out of the nobody's U.S. Nobody's playing by the rules. Nope. And everyone is in danger. And if I heard the CIA and the FBI were working together, I'd be like, oh shit. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's not a thing that happens. Right. So he does a really good scene where he just looks frightened and he starts breaking into a sprint. There's also a very good scene right around here, too, where um, after the White House wish issues these non-denial denials everybody's like well are you going to fire them or what are you going to we have to say something we have to say something and he just hand writes like Bradley stands behind the boys the boys or something like that that's the entirety of his statement like we're not these are our reporters we have published what they wrote Mm -hmm. we stand behind what the fuck we wrote. Like, and I think there's something else that Bradley is savvy enough to know, uh, which is, and earlier in the film, there was a discussion whether or not to take this story away from these two young men and give it to somebody else. Yes, because that's when it right. was, he's only been here for 10 months and you've been saying you're going to fire Bernstein right. and you so still have it. What, um, the fact that Bradley, I think, realizes that if everyone is telling you, this is ridiculous, don't do this, we're denying, we're denying, we're denying, the same sense that Robert Redford's character got earlier in the film, or rather Woodward did, which is, why are people denying things before I tell them to deny it? That's the thing, yes, yes. at the very beginning. denials before he mentions the Yeah, kind he's of like, they said they didn't do this or whatever, and they're mm-hmm. like, okay, well, what's the big deal? He goes, I didn't even mention it. Right. I did not mention the Watergate. Right. Before they started saying that they don't know anything about There's the There's no Watergate. connection whatsoever. Like, well... I think Bradley's smart enough to know <laughs> that this is... Yeah, something must be going on because they're they're protesting too much. Yeah. And they're overdoing it. They're overcompensating for, if this is nothing, then why is everyone fighting so hard to keep it quiet? Yeah. Uh, and shortly afterward, um, Woodward and Bernstein actually go and speak to Bradley in the middle of the night. Yeah. And this is after uh, 
Nixon is taking the oath of office, and we see this in the background. The set for his second. He's right, been second reelected. Term. And Bradley encourages them to keep going. And the 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 final scene in the film is just both men working away. Yeah, it's a really it's an interesting montage because the final scene of the film is basically eight months, right? And it's just them tapping, working on uh, both of them just tapping it away right. on typewriters and headlines kind of overlaying as time goes by and between January and right. August when he when Nixon is finally forced and that's to resign. The, the, the final thing that you, the final image on the screen is the the teletype or telling you that Nixon's resigned. And it follows a succession of just Colson falling and Haldeman and the rest yeah. of them, and then finally it gets to Nixon. So, which is probably you know where you get the title "All the Presidents." Then everyone winds up in the end coming under. But there's no big climax to the film. This mm-hmm. is just the first part of the story, but it's the part of the story where people teased out from all these denials that something was going wrong. It's just a lot of typing and people on the phone. Yeah, but uh, but it's that, like. Very compelling, right? Which is hard for it's, being it's, typing, and because, because journalism is not that interesting, y'all. It's just not. There's a lot of things that might be kind of frustrating to a, a younger audience, I think. <laughs> and I think that uh, you covered that when you were looking at Woodward's uh, investigations, realizing how much this could just be done. A lot of this online. would be Googled, right? A um, lot of this would be. At one point, Stuff they're looking through phone books. Sort. They're you know, trying to find the names. They get a list of people contributing to Creep, and they go through every last one yeah. on foot. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and then some of the people, they get the wrong, like, they go to that woman's house, and she's like, oh, I've been dying to talk to somebody about this because I've been a Republican my whole life, but this goes beyond that. And then you find out, and then she starts talking about some, like, weird conspiracy stuff, and they're like, Ms. So-and-so, and she's like, yeah, and they're like, you know, Jeanette's, and she's like, Colleen. That's <laughs> the wrong, just the and wrong there's, There is a lot of humor to the film, but in unexpected places. And there's also a lot of, um, it just, it works. It works in scenes where you wind up really being with these guys when they're trying to get Brent Bradley's support on any level. And then when he finally sends that note to his guys, we're going to support the boys, to paraphrase, it really means something because you're like, yeah. thank God, finally someone's listening to them. Yeah. And you wonder what the world had been like if this had never come to light, if this one reporter hadn't found these inconsistencies and gotten so... And then realized that they were inconsistencies and right. decided to do something about it. That's what reporters are for. Right. You know what I mean? Like, that's the kind of person that... And the same kind of issues that are being faced by journalists now working with an administration that's not kind to the press. Right. Or makes accusations at the press. The same sort of things happened then, but there was more, it seemed, in this uh, time when the story is taking place. There was more of a respect for what the journalists did. Yeah, no, I think that that's true. And more of a trust that they were telling But the I truth. also think that that's also, a, this was also a time when to be a journalist, you probably trained as a journalist. Right. Whereas now, with the internet, if I have a blog, I can call myself a journalist. I don't need to understand codes of ethics. I don't need to understand, you know, you know, well, or, we're or two. We're living in a very different age in yes. which people are celebrities, news celebrities. There are people who are YouTube celebrities who wind up broadcasting. Yeah, I, I understand that this might strike 
strike a sour note with some people, but the fact that we can have stand-up comedians who suddenly become... Bill you can have Maher. someone like Bill Maher, who basically, I remember him, was not a funny stand-up comedian either. I'm going to get on the back of Politically Incorrect right. with Kamau Bell and Hari Kondabolo, and their motto of their podcast is, fuck Bill Maher. Right. Yeah, he's a fucking racist asshole. And Islamophobe. and number of reasons. He, he has a, a very negative view organized religion and but at the same time uh, comics can do great news things no, see john see, stewart yes and that that's that's but right. also john stewart always said he was making a comedy show right he whenever somebody called him on not doing the news right, right. he was like my show's on after fucking swearing puppets like right. i'm not making a news show my right. show's on comedy central it's a comedy show just because he was doing news better than news outlets, that mm -hmm. says something about news outlets, not about him. Bill Markin believes himself to be a journalist, and he is not one, also not a journalist. What's that do? Piers Morgan. Fuck that guy. Well, I'm just, but see, that's kind of what I'm talking about. We've entered into this sort of world where... Tommy I'm, Lauren, also not I'm a journalist. Uh, not a journalist, but also not a reasonable human being. Wow. I, I, I can't believe we've come to an age now where there's not really the same kind of, as you said, education. There's not an education. And, and I actually don't think that you need to go to journalism school to be a journalist. I'm not saying that. But I do kind of think that there should be some sort of oath well, like doctors have to take. Standards and guidelines. Standards and guidelines. About what you're saying. Rules, right? What off the record means. What right. If you're going to write something as a fact, you should know what a fact, what the definition of a fact is. in order to know when you violated them. You have to understand the difference between objectivity and subjectivity. Mm. That's a real legit no, I, thing. Yeah. So, and and Did I don't feel like that's required right. right now, which makes the media an easier target because there are, of course, outlets that are adhering to well, very high quality <laughs> journalism. And then there are outlets right. who do not do there that. There are times where I'm listening to, and some of the journalists, and I have to give them credit on NPR who are trying so hard to remain objective, and you can just hear it in their voices like, oh my God, yeah. what just happened? <laughs> and you, because we're living in an age where it's very much like Nixon, where you have just, and the, the parallels are, are amazing. Uh, upsetting. They're upsetting. upsetting. You have this really paranoid, self-destructive person who just can't take any personal criticism, yeah. is suspicious and of everyone. It's um, turned into, uh, if you call someone out, for mm -hmm. blatantly stating a falsehood as right. truth, you're partisan. Hey, no, you're not. Right. No, you're not. That's not partisan. Right. Objective truth is objective truth. It doesn't have a liberal or conservative slant. Just because conservatives don't necessarily like the objective truth, that doesn't make it anti-conservative. Yeah, and I feel It that... just makes it... What was the... Thing that Al Gore, an, an inconvenient truth. <laughs> I feel that the this film reflects a lot of what we're experiencing right now, um, and it also makes heroes of people who worked very and put their lives at risk. Yeah, 
in order to get at something so that we understood that in the end this is not who we are as a country. Right? Well, it wasn't for them then. I I don't know about now. I, I think we're going to... Well, we'll see. We'll see. No, I, I, or we won't, because we'll all die. One <laughs> day. I, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't understand playing nuclear brinksmanship. I don't understand yeah. uh, the kind of... The antagonizing people who used to be allies. I don't understand any of this. And this is what... No. As much as we complain about the behavior of politicians, at least they're professionals. And yeah, it's... Yes, it, and once again, right. you might not like the way politicians do things, mm-hmm. but they do things in a specific way. The current administration do, right. does not follow norms. Well, and there's also something else, again, being very political and growing up in that generation, as much as I disliked a great deal of what Ronald Reagan did, at least he actually believed in what he was doing, Right. which is yes. the opposite of having a person who doesn't have any convictions about no. anything Except What's going to make me look good today? Right. I'm going to do that. And whatever that opinion is, that public opinion poll, he's going to run with it. And so as much as I disliked what the Bushes did or I disliked what Reagan did, at least they had the virtue of really honestly believing they were believing doing the right thing. Believing that they were doing the right thing right. or at least being consistent in the reasoning right. behind what they were doing, even if what they were doing was mm-hmm. shitty and horrible. Right. There's I mean, no consistency or reasoning in our current situation. No, it's just really erratic and Which is very a little bit terrifying. Right. <laughs> so let's talk about some of the... There's a lot of trivia on mm-hmm. this movie yeah. that I think is really interesting, so I want to go okay, over sure, some yeah. of that. I don't want to get too political. Hey guys, we live in California and are liberals, both of us. Also, yeah. one of us is a person of color and one of us is a woman and neither of us votes against our Right, our own best interests. However, I will bring up absolutely one of us is also very religious. Oh yes, and we have a Christian in the mix who grew up in a very conservative environment and is a different kind of Christian now because he's the kind of Christian that thinks Christ would not be a Republican. (laughs) I think the kind of well, Christ wouldn't be either. But the the point is, no, I know that's why I specifically said it the way that I said. I don't think it'd be a Democrat. Christianity is is never to support. Any kind of conservatism, Jesus was constantly tearing that down. Um, but you know, again, that's that's a different podcast. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but we are we do come from things from a right. I try to be as open minded as possible. And also the fact that we both grew up uh, poor, yeah, more or less. So poor I is think fair. That, that that's a, a thing that is a something that makes you kind of inclined liberal because. I think yeah. A right. if I have money, I don't mind my taxes going to help people that don't have money. Right. And when I didn't have money, those things very much kept me alive. Right. So I am appreciative of them and willing to give back when I can. I I am not a person. I don't think who, if I got a lot of money, would be like it's all mine. Mm. I'm. I mean, right now I'm not super excited to be giving to the government because they want to build a wall with my money. <laughs> and I'm not really on board for that. But if you want to fix some roads and give some kids some health care and maybe provide some coverage for those kids, those DACA kids, uh, I or actually please just use my money for that. good on the promise that we already made them. That's just, we, we already be did that. Be a decent human being. Could you? Would you? All right, we'll get off the politics. Sorry, guys. So this uh, movie would only be financed by Warner Brothers if Robert Redford started it. He's a producer, 
but he thought, uh, I'm just my very presence in this is going to tip it very much toward Woodward being the quote unquote star. Mm -hmm. So he sought out Dustin Hoffman to play the other character because he wanted somebody tall, blonde, good looking man. Well, he wanted somebody (laughs) as, as as high a stature as he was. And he, that is the regard with which he held Dustin Hoffman. And I think that's probably right. I mean, Mm -hmm. this is after Midnight Cowboy, right? Dustin Hoffman's an actor's actor. And if you really want to prove yourself... Not as an a, actress's actor, it turns no, out. No, not so much. But an actor's actor. Wah, wah. So <laughs> you, you, he, if you really wanted to be taken seriously, this is the opportunity and this is the person to do this with. Yeah. And I think that that's smart of him. And also, I wonder if he'd met Woodward and Bernstein at that point and realized mm-hmm. that they kind of both knew... Because they play. They really strengthen the other one's weaknesses, right. um, which I think is why they continue to work together. You know, after this and case, there's a lovely thing that you'll notice near the beginning of the film, through about the middle. They're still very competitive with each other, and so they will talk over each other all the time. They it's do. That's another. Um, that's why you started right. the way that I did, um, or that we did this time was um, to prepare. They memorize. The two lead actors memorized the other one's lines so that they could both interrupt each other in character, which through like everybody else was like, what's happening? Right. And but it made it a more uh, it made it seem like they were working as right. closely and for as long as they were, because even if they weren't working together before the start of the movie for a year. Right. Mm-hmm. This is their whole life. Right. Um, is working with each other. And <laughs> that was another, there's another piece that I enjoyed. It, I like watching things pre-cell phone, right. especially things where you're like, oh, if they just had a cell phone, this whole movie wouldn't even be a thing. There's a heist movie by um, Kubrick, where if those people had phones, the movie wouldn't even be the movie because <laughs> all they would have to do is call each other and be like, I'm running three minutes late. <laughs> There's a phone call where Bernstein's out on the road. Mm-hmm. And so he calls Woodward back and he's like, I got this and this and this. I'm, I'm trying to figure out where this thing is. And then he calls back like three hours later, maybe. And Woodward's figured it out and cracked it. But Bernstein's been working right. at it, but he's on the road. And so his, you know, his resources are less than what Woodward's got going on. And uh, he's like, oh, I think I know this thing. And Woodward's like, oh, no, I've got it. I've already figured it out. (laughs) I'm like, how long did poor Bernstein bang his head against the things and not get anywhere? But he, like I said, he was on the road, so I think he was calling from pay phones. It wasn't even like he could be reached to say, oh, I've got this, don't worry about it. Oh, I remember that world. It was was horrible. I mean, people just didn't show up. He didn't know if they were dead. It was was a very strange pre-cell phone world. There's uh, one scene where Robert Redford's on the phone, and it's a continuous six-minute single take with a camera tracking. Mm-hmm. Towards the end, Redford picks up his lines, and he calls the phone caller by the wrong name. They left it in. It oh, just wow. seems like he was... He stays in character, uh-huh. so he doesn't. He does what Dustin Hoffman did in Midnight uh-huh. Cowboy. Instead of yelling, we're filming a movie here, uh-huh. we... <laughs> I'm just going to keep rolling with it. And I bet that that would happen all of the time. Yeah. Look at all the names in his notes. There's so much to remember in this film. And I, yeah, I think that 
it must have been exhausting. The process of shooting this movie must have been exhausting, I think. Because there's so much to do. There's so much dialogue. There's so much spontaneity in these interactions, Yeah. too. You really feel, as I said, that it's sort of crackling, like you're there and you're in the mm-hmm. middle of it. Apparently, the Jack Warden character, the mm-hmm. who was the editor right above Woodward and Birds, and I uh-huh. guess the... Um, they were Metro? Because they were Washington... It's the Washington Post, mm-hmm. and they were Metro reporters. So they mm-hmm. were writing about the happenings in the city. So, Not national. They mm-hmm. weren't on the national desk. Right, because that gets... Uh, Bradley sorts those out. Yeah. What goes national, what goes... Right. Or rather, portions out what goes on the front page. So I guess in real life, mm-hmm. uh, Harry Rosenfeld, who's the, car- the that editor, mm-hmm. they had to tone down the dialogue that was originally written for him because apparently he's so smart and funny mm-hmm. that it reads fake. Like it would read... Like nobody would believe right. that he was that quick. Right. Um, which I think is really an interesting... Dumb him down a little bit. Yeah. Like... Now, just for those of you who are old enough to know who some of these people are... Nobody. Dustin Hoffman, Robert Redford, Jack Warden, Martin Balsam, Hal Holbrook, Jason Robards, Jane Alexander, Stephen Collins, Ned Beatty, Meredith Baxter, yes. Lindsay Krauss, F. Oh, Murray pre-Bernie Abraham. Meredith Baxter? Yeah, Meredith Baxter. I know her Richard as Meredith Hurd. Baxter Bernie. Uh, it's Polly Holiday. All of these, I mean, so many of them are just went on to these huge careers, and you're you're looking at them. It's one of those cases where, especially if you remember the seventies and eighties, a lot of actors coming out of here, even the bit parts. I mean, um, oh yeah, just went places, you know. And I, I found it funny because I completely forgot that Lindsay Krauss was in this film, and I don't even believe that she's credited as Lindsay Krauss. I think it's something else. And I'm explaining to Emily, no, no, she married David Mamet. They found the Steppenwolf Theater. They now, okay, you didn't say right. either of those things actually when you were describing who she was. Well, right, I was trying to remember <laughs> part that she might see her. I would have known uh, and her. And she did uh, some films with her husband, House of Cards, which is a great film with Joe Mantegna and William H Macy about con artists. Um, I was surprised that we didn't see Catherine Graham in this film. Had she not? No, she was definitely because they said something very unflattering about her. Oh, I don't. Remember. It is a threat. They yeah. were like, if if you guys go through with this, something about her right. special lady area. <laughs> I think they might have used the c word. Um, oh, this movie originally rated R because of all the fucks. Right now, PG. You know how many fucks are in it? All of them. <laughs> they were like. A historical significance, and I don't think the fuck the fucks are um, used toward people. Mm-hmm. I think they're just they're just incidental. If I had a a drinking game, okay, for this movie is how many times someone says Jesus or Jesus Christ. There's that's a lot of that in the film, including Bernstein, who's Jewish. You know, that's which makes it even funnier. But there's a lot of uh, well, mostly it's just the the constant. Surprised at just how big this story was that nobody saw coming. Nobody was expecting it to become this, this thing. Five Oscar winners are in this movie and five Oscar nominees. So Hoffman, Redford, Jason Robards, Martin Balsam, and F. Murray Abraham, who was, like I said, in one scene, he was in the very beginning. Mm-hmm. I'm going to assume he was the one police officer that you hear talk. Mm-hmm. They're all dressed like they've been fishing. They must have been undercover or something. But they had like, Weird floppy hats and uh, like Hawaiian shirts on, mm-hmm. 
and they pick up the call and they're like, are you sure you want us to go? Because they're, this other car is closer and also they're in uniform. And the dispatch person was like, they're getting gas. You guys go. <laughs> Which is so random. And then five Oscar nominees, Jack Warden, Hal Holbrook, Ned Beatty, Lindsey Krauss, and Jane Alexander. How has Hal Holbrook, or Ned Beatty for that matter, never won an Oscar? How is that possible? Um, I don't know. Uh, it's just like when you look at the body of work that they did, it seems ridiculous that they didn't. You know, there's some people who just got bypassed, and you're thinking, why are they, you know? So I found out sad news about our friend from that was uh, chosen to play himself, uh-huh. Frank Wells. So apparently after the break-in, like a couple of days later, he got fired for no reason was given. And then he was out of work until he got the one day of work on this. Mm-hmm. And then he was out of work. Like he never got a full-time job again. Well, it's a pity. Until he died in 2000 at the age of 52. So he was young when this happened. So you think he was just sort of blackballed? Or? I don't know. Huh. From everything? I don't know. That's, I don't know. That's, That's weird. It's sad. Catherine Graham isn't in the film, but I guess there was a version where she might have been. Mm-hmm. So Geraldine Page refused the role. Geraldine Page, wow. And then Lauren Bacall and Patricia Neal were also considered for Catherine Graham, but once again, she's not in the final cut of the film. Wow. Not to say that there aren't important women characters in this yeah. movie, but it wouldn't pass the back door test. They well, don't talk to each other. They only they talk, don't talk to, to each other. They, but also, this film is not at all about. It's not about really anything other than catching where this all. Yeah, slipped and up. there aren't women in so, the. Well, there is a woman in the newsroom who, unfortunately, has to kind of. And that's Lindsay Krauss. Use a date to right. get information, which wasn't. Which was upsetting, and which is also another great. example of where Bernstein was pushing it, and Woodward was pulling back. So this movie feels a lot like, a lot like Spotlight. And mm-hmm. I should probably really say, Spotlight right. feels a lot like this movie. And Spotlight is the, I think, 2016, 2015 Best Picture, um, which uh, is also very heavily newsroom-based. And it's the story of the Boston Globe breaking the um, Catholic priest's cover-up pedophile scandal. There's a lot of words in there. That was awkwardly phrased. Well, because I don't really know how to phrase it. Um, Because it's not like Watergate. Easy. Also, Watergate's called Watergate because the hotel and complex were called Watergate. Not because they put gate at the end of water and got the name of a scandal. So, can we stop doing this? Like, it's so aggravating. Every time I see something gate, I'm like, that's not a thing. Like, that's not how that works. Spotlight did win Best Picture. This one did not win Best Picture, but um, very similar. Um, another movie that feels a little bit like this is Zodiac from the early 2000s, which ostensibly is about a serial killer, but is really about reporters. Right. <laughs> that's who it's really about, and that's... I think a lot of people didn't like the movie because they were expecting a serial killer movie, and it is a journalism they movie. They also probably expected a resolution, and there is none. Oh, yeah, no. And there isn't. And there, a, because it's a real-life story, and they right. decided not to just 
name somebody, even though nobody's been named. There's a very tantalizing hint at the end that they did find who did it, but there's no actual follow-through yeah. or arrest or any of the things that give you a sense of satisfaction. You're just left with this uneasy feeling. Serial, season three. Right. Find the Zodiac Killer, Sarah. Come on, what are you doing? What is she doing? What is Serial season three? Any final thoughts on all the president's men? Um, only that I really appreciated it. Uh, again, out of the context of modern times, I probably appreciate it even more. Um, I wish that there was there was the same sort of feeling towards the press where you could trust them, and that there wasn't the sort of animosity there was towards the press that there is now, and so that we could actually hear voices that were talking about or warning us about the kind of things that are going on. I think that if you are a savvy media consumer, uh-huh. which is difficult, you can't just There's read so a headline things, and know right. a thing, but I think it's possible. There are still journalists doing good work. But there are also journalists who with questionable integrity. Mm-hmm. And that There have always been journalists with questionable integrity. There was... A period of time when you never, you would look at a, a, a newscaster like Walter Cronkite, Cronkite, and he was so much the voice of authority that you just trusted what he 90% said. 90% of that was actually his voice. <laughs> I'm serious. I remember that when I was a kid, I had a great big book of dinosaurs, and there was a record that went along with it that was done the record was recorded by Walter Cronkite, and he had the authoritative voice on dinosaurs. <laughs> he knows everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there isn't... Well, it's also... It, uh, it comes from many things, but also the, the splintering of... Right, that's true, too. ...sources. So we can silo ourselves into only hearing... Who you want to. Who you want to. And, yeah, n- not everybody turns into the evening news on... X channel, because there are 45 of those, all at the same time, all saying different things. Used to be the job of newspapers. What's that? (laughs) I'm joking. I know what a newspaper is. Messy. You got ink on your fingers. So plebeian. (laughs) Terrible. I'm going to hell. (laughs) Well, with that, do you have any recommendations this week? It's a film from 2015 called The Gift, and it's uh, directed by Joel Edgerton, who's also one of the stars. And he's an actor that you've probably seen everywhere. He's been in, in last all years. of the things. In Warrior, in Zero Dark Thirty, in The Great Gatsby, in Exodus, in Black Mass, in Loving, in Bright. He's just he's in Bright. everywhere. He's the orc. Right, he's an orc. So... He has been everywhere in the last few years. He's just all over the place. And he's, this is his directorial debut. He plays, and there's really not much I can say about this film without giving something away. Yeah, you don't want to give it too much of it away. And I don't want to give any it of it away. It stars him mm-hmm. and Jason Bateman and is Rebecca her name Rebecca Hall. Hall? Yes. Who's consistently excellent in mm-hmm. everything I've seen right. her in. It starts out. As one kind of film, and then it becomes another kind of film, and then it becomes better than it deserves to be, because you could sit here watching it from the trailers and guess that you're going to be watching a thriller, like, oh, The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. That's the way that they portrayed it, is, and, is very much like that, or Single White Female, or something like that. 
And then it becomes this other kind of film, which is really a meditation on emotional violence more than physical violence and on bullying. And as such, go into it with the uh, prepared for the fact that you're going to, it's a thinking movie. Mm-hmm. And the performances are very, very good. And so if it has elements of a thriller, it's not leading up to a thriller with a. Yeah, there are climax. drug scares that's not what right. this movie is. Um, and so I would, it's a great movie to think about, to talk about afterwards. Yeah, because it, it's also leaves a you, it leaves you with a, but what really happened? Mm-hmm. Like, it it could be multiple things. It could be really horrible, or it could just be horrible for one person, or it could be horrible for. Yeah, it's it's it really does leave it on a. And I'm warning you about that because I know there's some people who don't like ambiguity in movies. Yeah, and, so and I just like to know if it's going to be jump scary. Right. And so if if ambiguity is something that you're uncomfortable with then this is not the movie for you. Yeah, no, but, but other than that, if you... Drama, I would say... Drama, it's a drama. It's a drama with very good performances of it. Right. From, you know, people who consistently do good work. Right. I mean, and all you would of them. think, you, because it's a Blumhouse film... Oh, that's the other thing. Blumhouse really, really is doing the thing. Blumhouse really, at A24 you do are think two, that, two studios where I'm like, yeah, just watch everything. When you see their out. credit, you think it's going to be a horror film. That's true. Um, and that's why I'm sort Which of... is a little unfair, because they don't solely do horror no, films. They, they do primarily do they horror films. They do more shorts movies, apparently, now. So, um, they do anything you can make in five, with $5 million. Right. Jason Blum yeah. will give you $5 million. He is not going to give you $5 million and $1, right. so don't bother asking. But he will give you $5 million to make your movie. And this was a good choice because you had some first-rate performances by some first-rate actor, actors. And, and, well, actors. and I'm sure it didn't take very much to make because, I mean, the actors were probably paid fine, a fine amount of money, but not a huge amount of money. And most of it takes place in one in the house that they mm-hmm. have bought. Which but Yeah, and there's, there's elements of it that are creepy. I dislike the term psychological horror. People make the mistake of psychological horror are oh, films are things that are more realistic about the tension between two people. Given that, Notes on a Scandal is a psychological horror film. I've never heard the phrase psychological yeah, horror. that was a differentiation. If it doesn't have a vampire bat or a monster, but then it's psychological horror. I, I don't, I've only ever heard thriller. That's what I'm right. saying. And that seems closer to me because horror feels to me like there has to be some element of yuck. Well, the film a, bl- has a bleeding own, thing, well, or see, a, that, again, that, that no, 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 like physical yuck. The, but that cuts in this film doesn't really have that thriller, not horror. That's and what I'm saying. I know, but it's psychological <laughs> horror is a term, okay. <laughs> and that's what I'm discussing. So, uh, yeah, so this film it follows along that line, but at the same time, Jacob's Ladder, right. Rosemary's Baby. Rosemary's Baby, a perfect example. Nope, all of these say psychological thriller. Oh. <laughs> I'm telling you, I think that it's gotten taken over by suspicion, distrust, self-doubt, and paranoia. Sounds like a Saturday night. It... <laughs> oh, so, what would you recommend? I don't remember. Oh, Valerian. Oh, okay, yeah. guys. So... About a month and a half ago, month ago, I went away for the weekend. And during that time, I spent much of that weekend while I was relaxing and trying to sleep, 
watching Valerian and the city of a thousand planets. And I couldn't make it through because I kept falling asleep. But that's not the movie's fault. That's my fault. Uh, I kept trying to watch it at three o'clock in the morning. I should have just been going to sleep. This is a film that came out last year. It's a Luc Besson film based on a series of uh, comics, French comics, or graphic novels, I guess I should say. And it's a movie that cost a great deal of money. And so there was a big, it's going to flop thing. It's going to be terrible thing. Here's the thing about this movie, guys. It's very enjoyable. Now, here are some common things that you will hear, and they are not untrue. Those two lead characters have no chemistry whatsoever, and their whole relationship is weird and doesn't make a lot of sense. Okay, that's fine. Forget about it. Dane DeHaan is one of the least charismatic human beings that's ever existed. I don't know if that's true. That seems a little harsh, but he's wooden. He's not very interesting. There are tons of cool-ass aliens in this movie, and I don't care about the humans. It's like asking who starred in Alien vs. Predator. It doesn't matter. They're all going to die anyways. And Cara Delevingne is in this. She's a pretty wooden, too, but I kind of think that they were being maybe directed that way. The movie should just be called Valerian and Laureline because they're both important. And I would say she might be more important than he is, but his is the name that's in the title, so that sucks a little. Now, all of that stuff notwithstanding, there are cool-ass aliens in this movie. The opening is very awesome. There's this sort of chain of people coming up to the space station, and it's people and it's different nations adding their piece to the space station, different nations. And then aliens, the first one comes, and it's all these different life forms coming and adding themselves to the space station, which then gets too big for Earth. It's like the ISS. It's in our orbit, but then it gets too big, and it's going to start like being a problem with tides and shit, so we push it out into space. So, And then the rest of the movie is these space spies and their adventures. It's super fun. It's probably a half an hour longer than it should be, because I think I even fell asleep when we were watching it. You liked it? Yes, but I'm old. And what I appreciated about the film was, and this is, uh, all right, (laughs) I'm trying to find a polite way to do this. I don't have a great deal of fondness for the Star Wars movies. Star Wars movies, right. Because I find them horribly derivative of things that came before. Gotcha. And one of my issues with, and again, this is a film I really like, John Carter. Yeah. Was because I read the books growing up. Yeah. And re- when the film, uh, a film version finally got made, there were so many people complaining it was derivative of Star Wars, when in fact, the Star Wars was, was hundred years old. Yeah. yeah. And George Lucas strip-mined this film. Mm-hmm. And just like a lot of modern science fiction, cinematic science fiction, is basically ripping pages out of This is why when I like said this. Spotlight is, or right. this was a lot like Spotlight. That's not true. Right. Spotlight was a lot like this. Um, that, uh, and that's something John Brosnan in his book on science fiction films, Future Tense, covered, which is that science fiction filmmakers often treat written science fiction as like a junkyard where they can get pieces and stick them together. Right. And make their well, own if yeah, because right. so this it's was, easy and the work's been done. Right. And this sort of film is is based on 
material that was very influential in Europe right. and actually has a following here. So a lot of the elements that people were going to find derivative are things that have actually been reinterpreted by a number of people in the time since, but I actually, including Luc Besson as well. But mm-hmm. I thought it was very enjoyable. And it was very Super enjoyable. Super watchable. Right. Like I said, it's probably a half an hour longer than it It's very long. Half an mm-hmm. hour longer than it needs to be. But the set pieces are all it's very interesting. Oh, there's some the really... The visuals right. are stunning. Luc Besson is really good at handling action. Mm-hmm. And he's handling action on different scales, whether it's Jet Li kind of action or whether it's spaceships crashing in space kind of there action. There is a scene where Valerian's running through the... St- ship and it flips over into being a a situation where I'm like, I don't think he's clearing these rooms in five steps Mm -hmm. but I understand why we're doing that because Mm -hmm. nobody wants to watch him run for 15 minutes like this movie's long enough. Something I'll bring up for people who like, we have a really different attitude in the States with science fiction. Mm -hmm. I found, the things I found interesting about this film was how it's addressing the subject of colonialism in the context of science fiction Yep, and whether or not a greater uh, government has the right to go to what they call a primitive society. And that's the crux of this movie. There's actually well, something that's trying to Well, of course, we think that, we, that right. that's fine, because that's what we done did. Right, but this is coming from a, a perspective, and there's a lot of almost Afrofuturism at points in this film, with this sort of Moroccan uh, open market. Yeah. And there's a lot of elements of that, too. Some of the, I pointed out to Amity, the, the alien race in this film, that's the center of all the controversy in the The plot. pearls. Right, are um, where what looks like Kikuyu headdresses. Yeah. Uh, and African headdresses and um, and costumes. So there's a lot of... Despite uh, being so white. Well, not white. <laughs> and I know, they're very... They're, no, they're, they're literally blue. white. No, no, no. They're, they're, they're like pearlescent white. Okay. I, I thought they were blue. Yeah, uh, color blindness. It's a bit... So anyhow. You might be right. They might be blue. I'll, um, I'll double check. <laughs> But uh, yeah, they're so shiny and beautiful. I really, I enjoyed the film, and I, 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 I don't need at this point. I don't need the characters because again, it's all what you favor. None of the characters in Star Wars is, is interesting. No, it's true. Or, that's interesting, the, that's why say. it didn't bother me. None of them is really original. Original at yes. all. I mean, if you'd read enough science fiction, especially from the fifties and sixties, you've met all these characters a dozen times before. Right, they are. Is, well, some of the older fans... Not stereotypes, but... Right. Um, Archetypes. Yes, that. Right. Han Solo, start reading the Northwest Smith stories by C.L. Moore. That's the same character. And oh, the, and multiple right. other things. No, right, of course. exactly. So... Yeah. And that's why I, d- I didn't mind sort of the woodenness of these characters. Mm-hmm. That there is this thing, this ongoing thing, where he keeps proposing to her, and I'm like... Y'all don't even seem to like each other. I don't understand what like this him. is. I, he, but he doesn't seem to really give a fuck about anything. I don't. Yeah. It's very. It's a. It's strange. But that's fine. That might mm-hmm. be sort of a thing from the books right. that is like a French cultural thing mm-hmm. that it just doesn't translate. Doesn't translate. And you're going to run into a lot of. Like I said, European cultural tropes in right. this film. Right, and that but, might be just my cultural right. stupidity not understanding but these things. It's an enjoyable film. For sure. The, visually, it's beautiful at times. It's, it's pretty funny. Like, there right. are funny bits Rihanna to it. Is, Rihanna is, is great at it. Right. She plays a character named Bubble. Right. <laughs> Don't worry about it. It's awesome. <laughs> but, yeah, it just turned out to be surprising and, and fun. And I don't understand... 
It's if I'd seen yeah. it in the theater and paid full price, I would have been like, "Fuck yeah!" Well, see, and that was two and a half hours of a beautiful. Right, and it must have been interesting to see on a big screen, just sort of surrounded with all these images. Yeah. Anyways, that brings us to the end of this weird episode. Oh no, it doesn't. What are we going to watch next week? I thought we agreed on Taxi Driver. You never mentioned it, oh, we so mentioned we didn't it in the last agree. Podcast. You mentioned that eventually we were doing it. We do we probably, have Taxi yes, Driver? We then we're going to do it. That's right. Is it on television? Do you have record it? Uh, oh, we've oh, got it on DVD. DVD. All right. Just oh, this that. one, uh-huh. just so you guys know, um, All the President's Men, we actually rented on Amazon Prime. It right. was not available on a streaming service. And the streaming services that we have are legion. <laughs> we have so, almost all of them. To warn the audience who wants to see Taxi Driver Ooh, ahead of us. It's going to be super violent, right? It's incredibly violent at, uh, near the end of the film. is really violent and it is and more violent than The Godfather. Here's what I know about Taxi Driver. You, you looking at me? me? <laughs> okay, but just There's so nobody you, else here, so you must be looking at me. There's some things that will make you... It's like... Very much like Midnight Cowboy, in yeah. that there are things that are going to make you really uncomfortable. Jodie Foster plays a child prostitute. That's right, yes. Um, and there's a scene where Sybil Shepherd is sitting watching a porn movie, not strictly by her will either. It's very strange. Oh, well, that's unfortunate. I wasn't weirded out by the first part of that, but the second part of it made me sad. Well, All right. Yeah. If you haven't seen it, watch it with us. Well worth watching. Very Does it win an Academy Award? No, it's nominated, but mm. I don't think it wins. I don't think they would have at that time. Alrighty, so thank you for listening. Uh, if you have questions, concerns, comments, you can find us on all the social medias. You can email us at latecomerspod at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at latecomerspod. You can find us on Facebook. You can look up the Latecomers Podcast. Uh, we have a group and a Facebook page. Come find us. They're not very active yet. Make it active. Say a thing. We'll respond. I will be guesting on a podcast next week, but I will say more about it later. Uh, it's a Futurama podcast, guys. I just watched the episode. So you'll talk more about it in the future. I will. Yes, exactly. Lemuel's book is at uh, Amazon, Ceiling Night. That's S-E-E-L-I-N-G. Night, not Knigget. All right. Remember, better late than never. You never do it with me, son. You, you never. Okay, why don't we try it again? Give me some warning that it's coming this time. Okay. Remember. <laughs> I just figure when I say remember, you'll know okay, the fuck right, I'm going to say. All right. <laughs> all right, go ahead. You say it. <laughs> I'm not doing this together. I'm done with it. <laughs> remember. Better late than never. Better late than never. Better late than never. Better late than never.